I hope you're enjoying the rain. Uh, the Lord says, and Jesus said, that um, we know the grace and goodness of the Lord because he causes the rain to fall on both the good and the wicked. And we see his grace and his providence and his patience given to all of us sinners alike. So we're thankful for that. Well, turn with me, if you would, to the book of First Peter. We are slowly, in a very, I guess, John MacArthur-esque way, crawling through the book of First Peter and looking at the introduction. And this is part of our sermon series entitled uh, Standing Firm in the True Grace of God. And our sermon last week was entitled Children of Grace, taken from First Peter verses 1 and 2. And we've been walking through the doctrine of election together as Peter has presented it, to see the richness of God's grace and to see the magnitude of his love as it is displayed in our salvation. And this week, our sermon will be a counterpart to last week's sermon. Last week's sermon was entitled Children of Grace, and this week it's entitled Children of Responsibility, both which have its place in the grace of God that's given to us through his election of us as his chosen people. So let's read uh, 1 Peter and we will go through the first um, nine verses together. And our focus will be on the first two verses. And we will also be going to Acts 2 and Romans 9 later in this sermon. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin our exposition of his word. Lord Jesus, you have loved us before the foundation of time. You knew each one of us, Lord, before the foundation of time and before the foundation of this world. And in grace and in love, you have set us apart, though we are sinners, Lord, to be saved and to be rescued from our sins that we might know you and that we might receive the fullness of the glory of knowing you, Lord a knowledge that the world has, has no acquaintance with, reviles and rejects, 
and is unwilling to even consider. And yet you have blessed us, Lord, with love and grace and a sweetness of fellowship. And yet at the same time, Lord, day by day, you have also ordained that we would face challenges, trials, difficulties, Lord. And we come before you, Lord, as a people and say, Lord, how we fall short of your glory. Lord, we do our best, but we are frail men of dust. We are sinners, Lord, by nature. And we have fallen short of your glory. And so we cry out, Lord, this day for your grace and your mercy, knowing that because of the cross, you give it freely to us, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, that your cross and the blood that was shed for our sins is so much greater, Lord, than our sin or any challenge or any circumstance. And so with Peter, we can stand in the true grace of Christ and say that though we are faced with trials and tribulations, Lord, these things are for a short period of time. And what are they in comparison to the eternal weight of glory of knowing you? And we know, Lord, from your plan before the foundation of time that you have used these to refine our faith, Lord, to purify us, Lord, to show the beauty of what you have given us and to put on display the magnitude of your grace in our frailty, in our weakness, in our brokenness, Lord, so that we might appreciate the magnitude of your love for us in Christ. And for this, we thank you, Lord. And so, though we have not seen you eye to eye visually, we love you, Lord. And though we face trials, we rejoice and give thanks not because of who we are, not because of our circumstances, Lord Jesus, but because of who you are and because of your love for us, because of the cross and because of the resurrection, Lord, because of the gospel, these things, Lord, give us cause to rejoice and have hope, Lord, a hope that this world does not have, a hope that transforms, and a hope, Lord, that gives life. And so for these things, we thank you, Lord. In your name we pray, amen. Well, as we walk through the greeting of 1 Peter, and we've looked at Peter's epistle as a whole, and we've seen in verse 512 that Peter comes and informs us that the purpose of this epistle, it is a message from the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ himself, to saints who are suffering and hurting under persecution in the Roman provinces of Asia Minor. And the Spirit of God, in His grace and mercy, has called Peter as the shepherd to write this letter to these folks and to let them know what is indeed the true grace of God in Christ, the one thing that suffering and hurting saints need. And in addition to providing a true testimony of what that is, Peter is written to exhort them not just to have this testimony, but to go one step further and to stand firm in the true grace of God in Christ. This is the framework of what this letter is all about. And because it's addressed to hurting and persecuted saints and saints who are struggling with adversity, and because we live in a sinful, fallen world, and because we ourselves are sinful and fallen people, we see that the letter written to these saints that Peter has put together is just as pertinent to us this very day as it was some 2,000 years ago. And where does Peter begin in his discussion of the true grace of God in Christ and the exhortation to stand firm in it? We said over the last few weeks that his start is really dealing with the Christian identity, who we are in Christ. 
who we are in Christ and how that informs every aspect of our life. In many ways, this is a complement to what we've been studying through in Ephesians, where Paul prays for the saints that they would know how great the grace and love of God is in their life and that this is really the thing that they need. If they just knew that God has given us everything that we need for faith and godliness, how encouraged, how strengthened would we be and how empowered would we be to match the conflicts and adversities and the challenges that come on a day-to-day basis. And this is what the Spirit of God is doing for these people in verses 1 and 2. And so we see that Peter identifies them not in terms of who they are by the world standards, not in terms of their career, not in terms of their education, not in terms of their ethnicity or gender, but he's identifying them in verses 1 and 2 in terms of who they are in light of God's grace. And he refers to them as elect aliens of the diaspora. And as we said, that each of those terms is anchored in the scriptures of the Old Testament and makes clear to these folks that no matter what adversities that they are dealing with, no matter what challenges, no matter what their frailties and shortcomings, no matter how small their bank account is, no matter what their physical inadequacies are, no matter of how low esteem they are held in the world, that ultimately they are God's chosen people, that they are the fruit of his grace, that God has taken them as sinners who are totally depraved, completely unable to save themselves, men and women who are haters of God and his good news, and God has chosen them and set them apart and pulled them and called them out of the world and redeemed them and saved them with his blood and has made them his special possession, a people of his own, children of grace. And then Peter explains to us how God made that decision. How did God come to that conclusion that these people in particular were going to be saved and be his special prized possession? And what he makes clear in verse 2 when he says that they are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, he makes the point that God's choosing, just like God choosing the the children of Israel in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 7-7, was not on the basis of anything that they had done, anything that they were. It wasn't because they were tall or short or good looking. It wasn't because they were... Italians or Asians or Romans. It wasn't because they served well at the church or were particularly religious or diligent people. The point that is made is really that none of us, in and of ourselves, because we are who we are, we are totally depraved sinners in every aspect of our thinking and mind. We have no way of saving ourselves. What can we do to make ourselves children of God? The same way we would say, What did you do to become children of your parents? Absolutely nothing. Whether you were adopted or whether you were biologically born to your family, what exactly did you do? Did you pony up a certain amount of money? Did you lobby and say you were the best parents we wanted to be with you? And somehow in our American culture we think we're choosing God because he's the best God out there. But Peter brings them back to their identity to say, no, you were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And the point we made last week was the foreknowledge of God is not just God having a collection of information or predicting down the corridors of time who would be the best Christians 
and the worst Christians, well, we'll leave those aside. No, that the foreknowledge of God refers to his infinite love, his infinite and intimate love of his people that existed before the foundation of time, before we were created. Just as he said to Jeremiah, before you were born in your mother's womb, before you were knit in your mother's womb, I knew you. And we see when he says that to Jeremiah that that is really a foundation and anticipation of what each one of us would experience in Christ because of the cross. And so we see the glory of God's grace and the glory of God's love. And Peter is saying to them, your identity, who you are, you are not of the world. You are not like the people of the world. You are children of God's grace and you are children of, children of God's love. And this is what defines you as a people and this is going to be the framework and the foundation of everything that's going to follow. And so as we look at that, and we talked about that last week, I believe it was Caroline came up to me and asked me a question afterwards and said, you know, I have unbelieving friends and we talk about election and God's perfect plan, that God has this perfect plan before the foundation of time, which culminates in Christ and his death and his resurrection. And we have this trust and we have this hope. And what a trust and hope for suffering saints that we know that regardless of the circumstance, regardless of the challenges, regardless of the difficulties, ultimately God has a perfect plan. And the cross is a testimony of that perfect plan. And we can trust him and we can obey him because of that. And that gives us comfort. But if that's the case, if it's such a perfect plan and if it's all been worked out, what's my responsibility? Why should I even repent? Why should I obey? Why should I get up in the morning? Why should I do anything? And if you're an unbeliever, the question is, well, why do I really have to know God and know Jesus? If he's got it all worked out and if the Lord has already decided in his perfect plan that I'm either in or out, you know, why bother? And the flip side of that question that comes up is really among Christians. R.C. Sproul, the man who single-handedly God used in many ways to bring back so much Reformed theology into the evangelical church and bring to us and lay a foundation for the, the doctrines of sovereign graces and the magnitude of God's grace and the magnitude of, of his love, would often talk about abuses in Christian circles with him as a, as a Christian professor, how often students would come in and bring their papers in late because he was a gregarious and loving guy and they'd figure, you know, what's a day or two? Shouldn't you be giving us grace? And he would also talk about, and this goes way back before your time, but he also talked about the cassette ministry at Ligonier, pre-MP3. But he talked about the cassette ministry, and Grace had this, where you would go and borrow the cassettes and listen to the sermons, and you would bring them back, and there would be a swap program. And he talked about the abuses that happened of people not bringing them back or not honoring the agreement. And he, he made a statement that for some reason, believers, because they're living in a world of grace, they feel that they are not obligated to fulfill any responsibilities to one another. And so we find this phenomena in evangelical churches where we are not honoring the world standards because we're Christians and somehow we're supposedly exempt from the world standards. But, you know, we're really not honoring God's standards either because we're living in grace. And the issue is, if Christ has forgiven me all my sins, if he's got it all planned, if his foreknowledge and his election has set it all up, why bother? It's the idea that if, if my parents have already purchased maid service for the home, why should I clean my room? 
And it's a good question. And it's a question that needs to be answered. And we're going to answer those questions this morning as far as what's our responsibility and where does our responsibility fit in with the glory of God's grace and the glory of God's love. And we're going to look at two different passages. We're going to look at Acts 2, which is Peter's gospel sermon, and we're going to look at Romans 9. So turn with me, if you would, to Acts 2. In Acts 2, we find the first gospel sermon given by an apostle. The time is Pentecost. Christ has been crucified. He has risen from the grave. He has ministered to his disciples, and he has commissioned them, and he has said, wait in Jerusalem. Wait in Jerusalem for the coming and the baptism of the Holy Spirit the fulfillment of the new covenant promises by God, that there would be a new era where the Spirit would not just fill kings or prophets, but that they would fill every child of God. And he said, wait there, and you will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uh, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. And so the disciples have done just that. They are waiting in Jerusalem. And at the Feast of Pentecost, When male Jews from all across the diaspora and all the different provinces who are spread out by right within the tradition of Judaism are supposed to come and present themselves in the city of Jerusalem, Zion, the holy city, they have come. And so Jerusalem is packed with Jews and Jewish disciples who are Gentiles, who are proselytes, who have come into the Jewish faith from all across the Roman Empire. And on that day, the Spirit of God comes and descends, as you well know this story that's documented for us by by Luke and Acts. And the Spirit descends on the disciples. And the disciples who are now apostles begin speaking in the languages of all these different men who have come from across the world. And so we have these men who have traveled from afar suddenly begin to hear unlearned Galilean fishermen begin to speak in their native tongues, languages from Africa, languages from Egypt, languages from Greece, languages from all across the world. And of course, they say, are these men drunk? They cannot figure out what's happening and what's going on. And at that time and at that moment, Peter, the man who ran in fear before the cross, steps up in front of all these men and he begins to preach to them. And he preaches to them the gospel. And he goes first to Joel 2. And what he informs them as he appeals to scripture is that what they are witnessing before their eyes is not a mistake or happenstance or some freak accident. But it is, in fact, a fulfillment of the Old Testament promises of the inauguration of the Messianic Age, the inauguration of the Church Age, and the arrival of the New Covenant where the Spirit of God would descend and fill the children of God and God would no longer have to write the law, but the law would be present in each man's heart because the Spirit of God would be there and be present. And as he explains this to them and as he testifies this to them, he then begins to talk about Jesus of Nazareth and framing the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth and his death and his resurrection within the context of the fulfillment of God's promises. 
And that is what brings us to Acts 2. So turn with me to Acts 2, 22, and we're going to read this together. Peter says to them, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, and you put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. What is the first gospel message? The first gospel message, understandably, appeals to Scripture and God's promises in the Old Testament and points to Christ as the fulfillment, the peak, the very center of God's preordained plan before the beginning of time, that everything is about Christ. His life, His suffering, His death, His resurrection, His reign. As the later apostles will say, all things have been created by Him, through Him, and for Him. And Christ, the purpose of all things, is the exaltation of Christ. And Peter brings it to bear at this time. But he brings to bear the history that these men have witnessed. And the first thing he does as he talks about Jesus' ministry is he talks about the divine historicity, the divine historicity of Jesus of Nazareth. What do I mean by the divine historicity? Peter appeals to the fact that this was an actual event and a real man at a real place at a real time that God came and worked. And he also points out that God affirmed and clarified by miracles, signs, and wonders in verse 22 and 23 that God demonstrated to people that this was in fact his son, the son of God, the Christ, the son of the living God. And Peter tells these men who have gathered what they already know, that they had seen this man, that they had heard or seen or been eyewitnesses to these miracles, and they knew the same way Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and said, Teacher, we know that the things that you do, a man cannot do, and we know that these things are from God. Please explain to us. And Peter's saying, you've been there. You saw, you saw the miracles. You saw the affirmation. You knew that this was no ordinary man or prophet. And in fact, those of you who were learned in the scriptures knew that this was a fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies of God's Messiah who would bring a reign of righteousness and bring salvation for the sins of the nation of Israel and also the world and the fulfillment of the Abraham covenant that all nations would be blessed through Abraham. And of course, the question that would come up in everyone's mind is, yes, we did know, but what happened? If he was the Messiah who was to come to reign and bring the reign of righteousness and bring salvation, we know when we were eyewitnesses of the fact that he was crucified. How could he be the Messiah and the Son of God if he was killed by men? And so what does Peter say in his sermon? And what point does he make and what does he appeal to? says in verse 23, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. The prognosis, it's the same term that Peter uses in 30 years later in 1 Peter 1 and 2. 
He makes the point to them, and he lays the foundation for the gospel that Christ's death on the cross, his suffering and his betrayal, was not an accident and it was not a mistake. But the reason we know that Christ is the Son of God is because the cross itself was part of God's plan. It was the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures like Isaiah 53. And it was a clear demonstration that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. It was an affirmation from God above that this was part of God's elective plan and this was part of God's foreknowledge and love, his infinite love for his Son, that before the foundation of time he had planned that his Son would be killed and destroyed on our behalf. It is divine sovereignty. It is divine election. Not one aspect of that was outside of God's control. It was most intentional, and it was part of the plan of God. And I'm sure that this just shook their world. But then look what the Spirit of God does after he makes clear that Christ's suffering and his death and resurrection was completely the ordained decree and plan and foreknowledge of God's infinite love and grace. What does the Spirit do next after he says this was according to the plan, predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God? In verse 23, the Spirit of God comes through Peter and comes to these people who are listening and says, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and you put him to death. How often in gospel declarations do we think about blame how often in gospel declarations do we think about sin? How often in gospel declarations do we think about responsibility and ownership? And yet here, the Spirit of God, after the Spirit of God has testified that Christ's death on the cross was completely planned before the beginning of time because of the love and grace of God, then turns to these men and says, you, you were the ones you were the ones who destroyed this man. You were the ones who killed him. You were the ones who crucified him. And you were the ones who removed him from your conscience. And you did so through the hands of godless men. The fact that the Romans were the ones who put the nails in Christ's hands. The fact that the Romans were the ones who put him on the cross and pierced his side did not take away the culpability and the blame of all men from all around the world, for all mankind to be responsible for the death of Christ. Because ultimately the death of Christ was a rejection of God, it was a rejection of his word, and it was born out of sinful hearts filled with unrighteous anger that were determined to do everything they possibly could to erase the glory of God, the Son of God, the living God, the testimony of God from the face of the earth. And for a season, they felt that they had succeeded. And guess what? You and I are part of that. If what the Spirit is saying here is true, we take ownership of that. That we participated too, though we weren't the ones who put him on the cross and pierced his side. And we're held accountable to that. And so we see in this gospel message as Peter presents the gospel. 
He presents the sovereignty of God, the election of God, and the foreknowledge of God. And yet at the same time, he brings to bear the fact that we are responsible for our sins. And that our sins are an offense, not just to one another, but they are very much an offense directed against God. And it is because of our sins that the innocent Son of God, the Lamb of God, was slain. Yes, God is sovereign, but we are also responsible. There are many textbooks that come together that look at all the different ways. How are we going to reconcile this? How are we going to put this together? How can we explain that God is sovereign and we're responsible? And there are all these theories one way or the other. And you can, you know, we had to read them in seminary till our heads hurt. But what does God do here and what does the Spirit of God do? He appeals to Scripture. He appeals to His Word. And He simply says, I am sovereign. I am in control. I have planned everything perfectly in my love and in my grace. And my love and my grace and my sovereignty is greater than your will and your choices. My glory and my greatness transcends your choices. And ultimately, nothing is going to stop me from accomplishing my plan of grace and my plan of love. In fact, quite to the contrary, so great is my plan and so great is my glory that I am able to use your choices to accomplish my own ends. And yet at the same time, because of God's sovereignty and his greatness, he has created us with the opportunity to make moral choices. And the choices that we make, we willfully make. And the men who put Christ on the cross, they willfully did so with full desire and intent. And the desires that we have that are sinful and the actions that we do, whether I am unkind to my wife or whether I am over-harsh in the discipline of my child, or whether I'm disciplining him out of anger rather than kindness or grace, all of those things are choices that I make that I am morally responsible to before the Lord. It's kind of rough, isn't it? It's a little bit of a challenge. The question comes up, If God has planned it all and if he has done all these things, how can he possibly hold me responsible? Is God just and is God fair if he has ordained all these things before the beginning of time and he's going to accomplish his will and yet at the same time, can he really hold me responsible for my actions and what I do? Paul addresses these questions in Romans 9. So turn with me to Romans 9. The first question that we addressed when we looked at God's election is why bother? And why are we responsible? And the simple answer that Peter brings at the end of his gospel transaction with these men is this. You're responsible and you need to bother quite simply this because God commanded you to. Plain and simple. No complicated theories, no complicated models. This is what he's 
commanded you to do. And so then the question comes up, is his command and is his obligation of us, is it fair and is it just? And how is this possible? And is this right? And so when we come to Romans 9, Paul, at the end of Romans 8, has just finished extolling the virtue and the greatness of our election. It's the famous Romans 8, 28, 29, for all things work together for good. And you know the rest of that, where he deals with predestination, justification, glorification, and being conformed into the image of the Son. And he goes on at the end of Romans 8 and says, what can separate us from the love of God? Because it's a sovereign God who has planned this beforehand. What can separate us from the love of God? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Angels, demons, crises, all of these things, nothing can. And we have all the comfort that comes from election. But then he comes to Romans 9, and he anticipates these questions. And he laments and grieves of the fact that with the Jewish people, some have been chosen and others have not. And he goes through addressing the issue of Rebekah, who had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And he addresses the issue that before they were even before, born, before they had done any work, before there, there were any merits, that God had made clear, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. It's hard words. And I'd encourage you to go to John Piper's website and hear his sermon on Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, because it will go a long way to help frame that for you and give you an understanding. And we don't have time to address that this morning. But Paul goes and laments and grieves over the fact that some have been chosen and some have not. And as he walks through that, he anticipates the questions that are going to come and the objections that are going to come. And there are two questions that come. Is God just to choose some and not others? And if God's will is going to prevail and nothing can stand in the way of his will, why does he find fault with us? Why does he hold us accountable? Why are we responsible? So let's look at Romans 9. And we'll start at verse 10. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born, and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I, I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honor, honorable use, and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, 
which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Paul takes those two questions head on, and he addresses our responsibility within the framework of God's sovereign election. Is God unjust? In verse 14. And then in verse 19, why does God, why does God find fault? And what does Paul appeal to as he addresses these questions? Once again, he is not appealing to all the rabbinical experts. Once again, he is not appealing to all the different theories and models of election and sovereignty and predestination. Instead, what he does here is he essentially appeals to the glory of God and the truth of God's word. He appeals to the glory of God and the truth of God's word. What are Paul's answers? Is God unjust? No. Not even no. By no means. An emphatic negation. Absolutely not. And then he appeals to who God is and the character of God. How he has revealed himself and his glory in the truth of God's word. That God has the right to choose who he will be merciful to and who he will show compassion to. And he has the right to judge. I want to bring you to an idea or a concept that's from beginning to end that will pull this, I hope, together for you that Paul appeals to. It's the concept of the glory of God. We talk about the glory of God all the time. It's there in the Westminster Catechism. What are we supposed to live for? What is the chief of man, end of man? It is the glory of God, right? That's what we were created for. We were created for God's glory. Isaiah tells us that God has created all things for his glory, and it's repeated from beginning to end. But what exactly does that mean? You know, we sing Battle Hymn of Republic, glory, glory, hallelujah. Praise his glory, we sing. What exactly does that mean? The Old Testament scripture revelation of what glory is comes from a word called kavod in Hebrew. And kavod makes reference to weight or heaviness. And the notion that's brought up from Genesis through Revelation, and James addresses this too, is the notion that glory is the concept of what is something's worth. And the idea is that you're in the marketplace, in the Jewish marketplace, and you're standing there in a transaction. And how would they handle the transaction and the money? They would do it by virtue of scales, where there would be a scale with a set amount of weight of a standard sum of money, and you would put whatever silver or gold or whatever money on that weight, and it would weigh, and you would see what the worth would be based on how it sat, the weight and the worth. And so the notion that's brought up from Genesis through Revelation is the glory of God, God's worth. What is God worth? And the idea is as we put the glory of God, his worth on the scales, the scales tip off the balance because God's worth is infinite. His magnitude and his merit is infinite. There is no measure. He is the creator and he has created all things for his purpose. We humans, by comparison, in Proverbs and in James, are referred to in the psalmist as what? A vapor and a mist. Our worth is nothing apart from the glory of God because he is the one who has created us. Our meaning, the entirety of who we are, 
comes from him. We think of, if we're going to use a sports illustration, okay, since I'm working on that theme with Bob, but if we're dealing with a sports illustration, what's a professional athlete like when he's injured and he cannot play and he can no longer put the jersey on and stand in the limelight and stand before his team? And we've seen all the ugly underside of that aspect of players after they are retired. Without the name and identity of their team, they are nothing. Their glory is wrapped up in who they are and the identity that's been given to them and the glory of that particular owner and professional, professional sports team. And the idea is that we are God's creation who were created for his glory. And apart from him, we have no value or worth on our own. And so as we sit there in the scales and we see who is the most important person in the room, who is the most preeminent one, who is the one of infinite value, God stands on the scales and tips right off and we are but a vapor, a breath on a cold morning that is here one minute and gone the next. And so what Paul is coming and saying is, where do we get it in our ideas and our heads that we're in a position to judge God and tell him what's fair and tell him what's right and tell him what's good. Because you see, brothers and sisters, God does not do things because they're right or they're fair. Things are right and righteous and just because God does them. I'm going to say that again. God does not do things because they are right or fair. God does things, or let me get that that differently. Things are right and things are just and things are good because God does them. He is the standard of what is right, what is just, what is loving, and what is gracious. He sees in whole, we see in part, as Isaiah says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and so my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. We are neither in a position to judge God, and neither are we in a position to even understand the judgments of God. Because of his glory and because of who he is, It is his right to give mercy and compassion to who he gives mercy and compassion to. Paul then goes and says, okay, is he wrong to find fault with us then? Because he's going to make the decision. It's going to happen regardless of what I do. And Paul brings us back to the glory of God and the illustration of the potter and the clay. And he makes that point once again in light of the glory of God. That yes, indeed, he does have a right to find fault. And we have neither the capacity to understand nor the right to object to God's decision that you and I have been given the opportunity to make moral choices and that he will hold us accountable. That's kind of hard to take, isn't it? Does it seem right? Does it seem fair? We struggle with this. It's hard to understand. And yet scripture says that this is true because this is who God is. And we have to ask ourselves, why do we struggle with this so much? Why is it so difficult? And as I alluded to before in the past, we live in an information age 
We live in an age of technology. These are the gods we worship. And we live in a time and era where, let's be honest about it, the feeling is, is that the more we know, the more we have control over things. And how often in situations, whether it be a domestic dispute or dealing with an illness or dealing with a challenge, the belief is if I just had more information, if I just knew a little bit more, if I could just get more details, things would be better. How often when we are in the hospital and someone passes away and family members are there and, and they're with us and, and they go over the same events over and over and over again and they grill us with every detail about how this happened. How much potassium was put in the IV? How many x-rays did you do? How many CT scans? It goes over and over and over again. And on our good days, we are loving and we're patient and we're bearing with them because we understand that they are grieving and we understand that they are hurting. But there comes a point where we want to shepherd them and say, you know, this is a sad and grievous moment and this is a painful moment. But there comes a point where no amount of information and no amount of knowing could have changed the outcome of this event, can give you back your father or your mother or your brother or your sister, and can heal the broken heart. The only things that can do that are love and grace. And I want you to try something else on for size here. Did it ever occur to you that perhaps it was an act of grace and love from God that he has withheld some details from us of his perfect plan and that he hasn't gone into detail. And he has said, as Deuteronomy 29 and 29 says, that the revealed things are ours, but the hidden things are the Lord's. That there are some things it's better off not to know the details and the information. And we see this on a repeated basis that God does this out of an act of kindness and mercy because when we go into the Old Testament and Moses comes to God in Exodus 33 and he says to God, these sinful people, I'm breaking down, I can't continue to lead them. Lord, I can't go forward unless you show me your, your glory. And the Lord says to him, because I know you, I, that means that because Moses, I love you, I will show you my glory. But what does God say to Moses? You can't really see all my glory because it will destroy you. So I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand. And as I pass and as my glory passes, you will see the tailwind or the back. Moses, I love you. Moses, I want you to see my glory. Moses, I want you to have it all. But I am the creator. I am the father of all glory. And you are a mere sinful man. And it will destroy you beyond anything you could possibly think or imagine. And so God protects Moses by withholding a portion of his glory, but giving what Moses is able to handle. And then we come to Jesus in the garden before the men are going to follow him to the cross and he's going to be separated and he's going to leave in John 16. And as these men are being prepared by Jesus for the cross, what does Jesus say to these men in John 16? He says to them, I would tell you more, but it is more than you can bear at this time. That's a paraphrase. He makes it clear to them that there is more that he wanted to say to them. But as an act of grace, an act of love, he has given them what they are able to handle. 
How often, brothers and sisters, in my marriage have I sinned by saying, Julie, you need to know everything and just pouring it all out. Whatever stress happened on the job, whatever conflict has come up, whatever financial struggles we're dealing with. And then afterwards I thought, you know, I just basically did an information dump. I feel better. She knows all our details. But was that really a loving and kind thing to my wife? And as I've been shepherded by older and godly men who have come and held me accountable in this area and in many ways directly or indirectly called me to repentance in this area, I realize that as a husband who stands with my wife to love her as Christ has loved the church, it is my responsibility to say that more information is not necessarily better. I need to lovingly shepherd and minister to her and give her that whatever comes out of my mouth is going to edify and build her up as Ephesians calls us to do and is going to glorify the Lord. That notion that we have in our industry of full disclosure, of putting all the information out there so no one can harm or come against us, is not entirely scriptural. What is scriptural is what comes out of our mouth and the information that's given needs to honor and glorify the Lord and it needs to edify those who hear that God has been gracious to us not to give us all the details. And so can we completely understand why he holds us responsible? No. Can we understand how he sovereignly works through our choices? No. But Paul in Romans and Peter in Acts comes and says to us, you need to know and have this confidence and trust that God does have it all planned out perfectly in his love and his graciousness and his goodness. But there are going to be things that are going to be hard and difficult and challenging. And you might not completely understand and you might not completely know. But you can trust that God does it perfectly. And yet at the same time, grace given is also a responsibility given. That we are also responsible for our choices before the Lord. Why? Because he's sovereign and because he's made us that way. When I was four or five years old, my parents and my pediatrician decided I needed to have my tonsils removed. It was a surgery that was very fashionable at that time in that era. If you got a few sore throats during the year, in you went to the chopping block. My parents at that time, as they took me in, they did not sit me down and they did not tell me that a surgeon would come and he would take a blade and electrocautery and an IV would be stuck in and he would go and remove the back of my throat and there would be a scabby tissue on the top of that. They basically bypassed all of that. They sent, essentially said, we're going to the hospital, something needs to be done. I had the operation, quite ignorant. I woke up, I had a sore throat, I began to cry. My parents appeared and they fed me with popsicles and ice cream. And in the bigger picture, everything was good. Okay. Now as a physician, I look back and I was like, oof, tonsillectomies. I plead with parents, if you don't need to have it done, please don't. Now that I've been on the other side. You know, the challenge that the Lord is bringing to us and that Peter is bringing to us and Romans is bringing to us is really this. Are we willing to let God be God? And are we going to trust in his love and his care for us? That he has it worked out from beginning to end, including the bumps in the road, including the crosses that come, including the difficulties that come. Are we really going to believe he is who he says he is? 
Dr. MacArthur makes the point that when his wife had her neck broken in a car accident, the family gathered together and it was unclear whether his wife would ever walk again. And as they gathered together, his youngest daughter was having a very difficult time with that. In fact, if I remember him sharing this correctly with us, she was uncontrollably sobbing at this. And after this went on for a period of time, Dr. MacArthur took his youngest daughter and looked at her in the face and said to his daughter, it's time for us to live what we believe. It's time for us to live what we believe, that there is a sovereign God who has redeemed us in Christ. He has a perfect plan, and he knows what's best for our family. It's time for us to live what we believe. And there you find the tension between the indicatives and the imperatives, between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. Let's go back to Acts 2, and let's see what the response of these men is. Once you get to Acts 2.22, please go to Acts, excuse me, Acts 2, let's go to Acts 2.36. Peter sums up and begins to sum up his gospel presentation. He says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus of Nazareth, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. What is the right response to God's sovereignty and yet our human responsibility? The presentation of 1 Peter, Acts, and Romans presents this, that responsibility is actually a gift of God's grace. Responsibility is actually a gift of God's grace. It's not separate from God's grace. We look at children who are born into royal families or privileged families. We look at the sons and daughters of kings and we think of all the privileges that are available to them, all the best education, all the best doors being open to them. And yet with that privilege comes a responsibility that they act in a way that's responsible to their office. The two go hand in hand, and in fact, the responsibility is also a gift. And the responsibility that comes with grace, as these men who crucified Jesus and participated and were eyewitnesses and were far closer visually to the sin in their own lives that put Christ on the cross, though we are no less culpable the grace that was given to them that day was the proclamation first that God had planned this out and that Christ had come to save them from their sins but second the gift of grace was that they were responsible and that they were being told and confronted for their sins there can be no forgiveness of sins if there are no sins 
or if there's no willingness to agree on sin. And so the gift of grace is that they are being confronted with their sins. But the other half of the gift of grace is the gift and the responsibility of repentance. And as Peter confronts them, the Spirit confronts them, we see here a framework of how God asks us to respond in a responsible way to the presentation of the true gospel and who Jesus is. It's a responsibility of true repentance. And as we see these men, we see the framework of what true repentance is. Men who go and say, Peter, what shall we do? What are we going to do? These men realize for the first time that something horrific and monstrous has happened. That the child of God, the son of God has been destroyed by our sin. But they also realize something else. Not only is our offense directly against God, the father of infinite glory, the God who loved us, the God who gave us grace. But there's absolutely nothing we can do to fix this. There's absolutely nothing we can do to remedy this. We cannot turn the clock back. We cannot undo what we said. We cannot stop the illegal proceedings that destroy Christ. There's nothing that we can do. The damage is done. Woe be unto us. We are undone because we are sinful men. And the only thing that they can do is to cast themselves upon the word of God. What Peter is going to say to them. To go to the word of God and say, what should we do? Not to the wisdom of men. And then the next thing that they are called to do in the responsibility of grace is to hear and obey what Peter is saying from the word of God, that you need to repent and you need to be baptized, you need to believe in the name of Jesus Christ, you need to be identified with him in the entirety of your life for the forgiveness of your sins. Brothers and sisters, is it any different from us today? Are we confronted with any less choice and responsibility? Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, he is elected. Yes, he is gracious. Yes, he is good. Yes, he has planned it all. Yes, he is going to accomplish all things. And we have faith and hope and trust in that. But guess what? His sovereignty says we're responsible. We are responsible for our sins because they are an offense against him. And we are responsible with how we handle those sins. And we can't turn the clock back and we can't undo our sins. But guess what? We can live as children of grace and we can live as children of responsibility and we can live lives of repentance that bathe in the grace and love of God and we can step up to the plate by the power that he's given, by the spirit that he's given and by the word that he's given and we can be the children he's called us to be, children of grace and children of responsibility who demonstrate the glory of God's patience the glory of God's perseverance, the glory of God's kindness, all as a testimony to the greatness of his grace. D.A. Carson talks about responsibility and defines responsibility in this way. He says that responsibility is a personal relationship of obligation and accountability to a specific person. Responsibility is a personal relationship of obligation and response of obligation, excuse me, and accountability to a specific person. 
the testimony of Scripture and the testimony of 1 Peter and the testimony of Acts and the testimony of Romans is that God is not accountable or obligated to us. He is only obligated to himself because he is the God of infinite glory. But we as his creation are obligated and accountable to him to respond and be obedient to his word and to take ownership of the consequences that come from that. And if we are saved and if we are his children, we are doubly responsible. And the question, why bother, is answered. Why bother? Because Peter says we have been purchased by the blood of the lamb, which is more precious than silver and gold. And because we are his children of grace, we are also his children of responsibility. And that responsibility that we have to hear his word, to take ownership of our sins and to repent and to enjoy the fullness of his grace is a responsibility that is a privilege and it is a gift of grace in which we can give thanks and rejoice. Why? Because it is all of God and it is all of Christ and it is all of the cross. And for this reason, Christ came and he died so that we might no longer live for ourselves, but that we might live for him. So as we consider Peter, as we consider you and I, as we consider this church as a whole, how are we to stand firm in the grace of God? The first question that comes out is, have we really taken ownership of our sins, each one of us? Difficult times, hard times, it's easy to point our fingers at one another but each one of us will stand before God as judge and each one of us needs to take ownership of our sins and each one of us needs to come forth and say that my sins are not just defending my brother or sister but my sins put Christ on the cross through the hands of godless men and for some who may not be saved here or might not know the Lord in that way we need to come and ask ourselves, is this time to respond in the way that the men of Acts did and said, what should we do? A time of repentance, a time of coming to the Lord for forgiveness, and a time of believing on the name of Jesus Christ in a way that we have not before so that our lives are identified with him. But how about for the rest of us, let's say we are believers. The challenge is no less we are responsible for our choices. We have this confidence and hope that God has planned it all perfectly. And we can trust him perfectly. Will we believe he is the God who he says he is? Will we believe that he is the God who has loved us in grace and mercy and has set us apart? And because we believe in that, will we take ownership for our sins and confess them and go to him? and allow him to do what only he can do? And will we, as a community, be a people who are truly baptized with Christ, where our only identity is not Mark Chen or Joe Jung or Hyun Sa, but our identity is Christ? And we can say, I have truly, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's not I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me, and the life I live, I live by faith in the one who died for me and was raised from the grave. That is the challenge for us in our marriages. That is the challenge for us in our work. That is the challenge for us in our leadership. That is the challenge every aspect of the way. And what is the hope in all of that? The hope in all of that is that that is the sweet spot of God's will where the grace of the Lord abounds through and through. 
And that is the place where God does exceedingly and abundantly over and above anything that we could hope or imagine. Why? Because it's no longer about you and me, but it's about Christ. And it's because Christ is handling our sin. Mark Chin is not handling his sin. And that is the only place that our sin is going to be handled. And so the question for us is, yes, will we be children of grace? Well, if we're going to be children of grace, will we be children of responsibility as well? Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you died on the cross to give us the opportunity and privilege of knowing you. And we thank you, Lord, that you have withheld certain things which we can't begin to understand or know out of love and grace for us, Lord. We confess to you, Lord, that we are sinners and our sin puts you on the cross. But we have hope because you have given us grace from the cross. And so we thank you for this and we praise you for this. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us by your grace to be not just children of grace, but children of responsibility as well. For your name's sake and for your glory, Lord. In your name we pray, amen.